Hey everybody, welcome back to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast sponsored by Hunt to Eat and Filson. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and today we have a pretty special episode. Not only is this about one of the most iconic upland game birds there is, the ring-necked pheasant, it's also with two good, good friends of mine. Bob St. Pierre of Pheasants Forever, with whom I've hunted and worked with for many, many years, and Chris Niskanen. Chris is a lifetime pheasant hunter, and he happens to be the guy who got me started into hunting in the first place. So we go through a long list of topics that deal with the disco chicken, ranging from how they got here to their habitat to conservation issues and to a lot of mechanical stuff on how to put birds into your bag and then what to do with them once you get them home. Without further ado, here we go. Welcome, welcome back to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Chris Niskanen and Bob St. Pierre. This is one of the rare instances where not only do I know both of you guys, but I've hunted with both of you guys. And it's maybe one of the very few podcasts where I have actual long-term good friends. So this is going to be a fun show, I think, or at least I hope. Welcome (laughs) to the show. And uh, Chris, tell me a little bit about what you do, because up until recently, you worked for Minnesota DNR, and you are kind of in a new situation now, aren't you? Hey, Hank. Yeah, Chris here. Yeah, I was the communications director uh, for the Department of Natural Resources for about 10 years and decided I just wanted to try a new path in my life. I'm really interested in um, food sustainability and um, staying in communications, uh, climate change, and I'm uh, employed at the moment and looking forward to going hunting with Bob and Matt tomorrow morning at 6 (laughs) a.m., So I, I, I we're going to talk about our imminent hunting plans because we're going to pass like ships in the night in the Dakotas uh, very soon. But So Bob St. Pierre, you are – I think most people know that you are the genius behind Puffessence <laughs> Pufferever. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's, it's already going to get thick here, isn't it? <laughs> so you've been working at uh, – you're a vice president for communications. Is that what it is? Or yep, what's your actual – yeah, vice president for uh, marketing and communications. I started working here um, at, with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever when I was two. So um, 18 <laughs> years later, I'm now in my 20s, right, Hank? Yeah, uh, you look good for 74. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I, I've been uh, been with the organization since 2003, and um, that my my role includes uh, marketing the organization at a national level. Um, membership recruitment, um, social media, um, media relations, our publications, uh, as well as uh, corporate partnerships and National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. And I, I, I was trying to remember exactly where you and I first connected. And it, I gotta believe it's it's um, it, when you follow the string all the way back to inception. It it was National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic, probably more than a decade ago. Do you remember better than I do? I do. Uh, I remember the place. It was at the, I can't remember the exact name of it, but you guys will know. It's the, it's the old school bar on in St. Paul that serves the really good fried walleye and they served it to Gorbachev. Huh. It, is it a Tavern on Grand? I think, yes, I think it's Tavern on Grand. Okay. And as we had lunch there, it was you and me and the Rehan, 
And we all know, because Rayhan's probably listening to this, is Rayhan Nana, which is, he now works for Garmin, but yep. he is also an inveterate quail hunter, actually. And, and I'm going to have to chase those birds down in Missouri with him. But yeah, that was a, it was a, just a lunch meeting. And I don't remember the year. I'm pretty sure I was already living in California at the time. And I think it might have been when I was on book tour in 2011. That makes sense because um the first time you appeared on a national pheasant fest and quail classic stage was in kansas city which our first trip to kansas city was 2012 because i remember talking to you about do you got any barbecue recipes to go with pheasant for the kansas city stage and uh so 2011 as we were planning that makes a ton of sense Time flies, doesn't it? It has. It has. And so, Chris, you sold yourself short a little bit. So, yeah, I actually didn't know you'd been working at DNR for 10 years. It seems like it's only been a couple. But Chris is a, a an outdoor writer uh, of the old school order. I mean, he uh, he has worked as an outdoor writer off and on for your, basically your whole career, right? Yeah, actually, uh, my first outdoor writing, outdoor writer job was in 1988. Man, went to the University of Minnesota Journalism School and got an article published in Fins and Feathers magazine, which is kind of what started my whole journalism career. Decided I never wanted to ever cover a school board meeting or a um, city council meeting in my life. So 23 years later, I had uh, accomplished that, worked for three different newspapers, including the Reno Gazette Journal, not not just over the hill from you there, Hank, mm-hmm. and then spent 17 years as the outdoor writer at the St. Paul Pioneer Press, which was a, a real gem of a job. And, and that's how we met. I tell this story over and over and over again because people always ask me, I'm just going to start right now because this is the first time I've ever had you on the air when I tell this damn story, which I've told for 4,000 billion times because Every person who interviews me is like, well, so how did you get involved in hunting? The story, as I tell it, is so you and I were working together at the Pioneer Press, and I was an investigative reporter, and you were the outdoor writer, and we'd been fishing because I moved in uh, late spring or early summer of 2001, I think. could have been 2002, but I think it was 2001. The fall came, as it does. And you had started to hunt, and you invited me on, uh, of all things, a puff pheasant hunt. <laughs> so it was perfect for this episode, right? And it was a pheasant hunt in Aberdeen with the greatest gun dog of all time, Finn. Uh, and of course, Bob's gonna Bob's gonna argue because Trammel is is the second best gun dog of all time. And we went out, and I I I always tell the great story of like so. You hadn't shot a shotgun before, right? Like, nope, never shot a shotgun before in my life. So Chris whips out this, uh, I think it was a 12-gauge over-under. It might have been a 20-gauge over-under. I can't, you probably still have it. And you threw up, like, milk jugs in, like, some field. I remember we parked some random spot. There's some trees on the left. I'll I'll never forget the scene. And we pulled out the gun, we loaded it, and you threw up some milk jugs, I think two or three times, and I hit one, and you were like, all right, we're good. (laughs) <laughs> and i proceeded to not hit anything on that trip but 
the story that I tell that really hooked me and created the the monster, which is why, by the way, if any of you guys out there have the book Pheasant Quail Cottontail, which is my latest book, and it's the book that accompanies this podcast season, the dedication is to you, Chris, and it's basically says short and simple. It's all your fault. <laughs> I'm blushing, Hank, right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 uh, I remember that day. Can I continue the story? Yeah, yeah. I remember that day because we went out to um, Sand Lake National Wildlife Refuge, and um, it's only open, I think, from mid-December uh, to the end of the pheasant season. And it was a really hard day of hunting. It was cold and super windy, um, perhaps probably the worst pheasant hunting conditions you can be in. And um, you were a great sport and a great companion that day. Um Complained only mildly. Um, yeah, because I got a, a cattail in my eyeball. <laughs> it was, you know, and I've done that before when you, you're you going through cattails and you get one underneath your glasses. It's horrible. Uh, I mean, you know, your eyes are watering. The tough part of that day was walking through deep snow and there were lots of pheasants back then. And um, so we had quite a few uh, opportunities but walking through deep snow and then trying to shoot a bird that's coming out super fast and your hands are freezing. And it also happens to be my favorite type of pheasant hunting because it's hard and not many people do it. But you were um, you were a great sport that day. We slept in a horrible, horrible motel, I think, in Britain, South Dakota. And, and the next day got only worse. So, um, yeah, thanks for uh, going on that trip. And um, the rest is history, I guess. Hmm. Well, there's one more piece of that hunt that I'm never going to forget. And that is – so uh, Chris is really super nice when he's in a house. Um, but if you're actually hunting pheasants with Chris, he can be a little bit sort of drill sergeanty. Uh, and I didn't fully understand because, you know, I'm, I don't know anything about hunting at this point. So he's like, keep up, keep up, don't keep up with me. And he's walking super fast, right? And Finn the dog – Finn is a lab. She was – kind of coursing back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And while we were walking in a line on this field, he's like, keep up, keep up. Cause what he knew that I didn't know at the time is that there's any number of disco chickens running in front of us that we can't see. And, and so Finn's going, getting birdier and birdier and birdier. And I, even I can tell as like a never before hunted guy, like, Oh God, the dog's getting super excited. And we're nearing the end of this field and it's like eight billion roosters come up and chris shoots one i miss of course because i flock shot like duh and so chris dings one right and it hits the ground at the end of the field and there's no more cover so this pheasant immediately jumps up and does the chicken dance as like imagine like a, a really freaked out pheasant with its head up looking super nervous running for its life because a black lab is chasing it and so Finn is chasing it, Finn is chasing it, Finn is chasing it. And then there's a rock, like a big old rock, probably about the size of, oh, I don't know, I don't know, two feet by two feet. And this pheasant runs around the rock and Finn chases it like three times. It's like cue Benny Hill theme music. And then finally Finn catches the pheasant and then like the game was over. But it, I'll never forget that scene of Finn the dog was a little slim black lab chasing around this 
And finally grabs the pheasant, and then there we go. It's funny you remember that so well because, I mean, first of all, you you nailed it. Um, I remember that field. It was really thin cover, and um, we were coming to the end, and we were just pushing everything to the end. And it was just going to be a complete, you know, um, mess uh, because everything was going to come out at the same time. And when Finn hit that ground with that pheasant chasing that around, it was a rock pile, actually. It was a fairly sizable rock pile. I remember we stood there and we just watched the dog go around and around the rock pile chasing this pheasant. And I knew she would catch it sooner or later. But it was it was one of the things that I remember that I love about dogs is just they never give up. They'll go to the end of the day and then they'll go the next day and the third day. And if you have a really good pheasant dog, they understand the bird better than you do. Mm-hmm. I know, Bob, you you know what I'm talking about. And, and I'm sure we'll get to that somewhere down the road. But thanks for that memory, Hank, because that was a great day. And it was well, th- this is Bob. And I, I do want to just attack on one little bit. Because obviously I wasn't there for the, you know, the origin story, but there's another story that Chris wrote featuring Hank, and this is back in the Pioneer Press days, and it was a North Dakota sharp tail hunt that you two did together, and you wrote the story about the hunt, and then later that day, I think it was rose hips Hank harvested and then created a sauce if I'm recalling correctly, I, that you, you've just cooked up a sharp tail dinner with the the birds and the rose hips on the prairie. And the year had to have been in the 2000 and let's say eight or nine range. Sounds about and, right. And to me, so obviously I knew Chris as a pioneer press writer and I was the media relations person at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever at the time, but I didn't know Hank. And I don't think that the prairie to plate, you know, knowing where your food comes from sort of ethos had really gained momentum. And that story, that friendship, that hunt, the combination of using everything you harvested that day on the North Dakota prairie was a watershed moment for me. It was it was something that I read and it it resonated and ultimately led to uh, you know a lot of the ways that I think about marketing to one of the audiences that you know uh, we want to engage in conservation. It's that quote unquote foodie audience, the locavore audience, the prairie to plate audience that we want to be engaged in wildlife habitat in conservation through the connection that's so natural to to many of us and that's the land to the birds to hunting to what hits your plate and it you know we can date it back to Aldo Leopold and his comments about uh, you know food food not coming from the grocery store it comes from the land and that that you know, I'd read Leopold and that that resonated with me. But Chris Niskanen and Hank Shaw brought it home um, so that, you know, on behalf of a whole generation. Thank you. That was a that's just a really, really life changing story. 
That was a hell of a hunt, too. I mean, that's where I learned that sharp-tailed grouse really ought to be called top-of-the-hill grouse because every single – I mean, there were bajillions of sharpies everywhere. I mean, it was pretty much limits all around. But you think about the Dakotas as not being super flat, and yeah, apparently not. So every single time you would be walking, huffing and puffing up a hill – and you'd be pretty sure there'd be Sharpies up there somewhere. But you knew, well, at least I figured it out pretty quickly, that they're not going to be at the front of the hill. They're hearing you come up the hill, and they're like, I don't know. And they're like, I still don't know. And then as soon as your head breaks the top of the hill, they're like, oh, my God, hairless monkeys. And, <laughs> and they fly. And so it's like you got to get, you got to stop before your head breaks the top of the hill. Catch your breath because, you know, the evil chickens are going to be flying the second your head stops it. <laughs> Uh, I've never heard him compared with a Wizard of Oz voice before, but but uh, that'll stay. As Chris Chris mentioned, uh, we have a departure about 5:45 a.m. tomorrow morning. To uh, we're going to the the Southern Dakota in search of sharpies. So there's still time for you to join us if you want, Hank. But otherwise, um, we're we're I'm I'm gonna have that uh, soundtrack of hairless monkeys in the back of my head now <laughs> i actually uh, have a normal departure tomorrow um and i'm driving the 2000 miles to go to north dakota and it's gonna take me a couple of days and i'm gonna be hunting with the guy i did the hungarian partridge episode with which uh tyler webster and i am hoping 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 to actually shoot a bunch of Hungarian partridge for the first time ever. I've hunted them a, a few times and I find them maddening. And, you know, they're, unless you get a bunch of coveys and you're on the right hand side, because quick side note, um, Hungarian partridges flush like bobwhite quail, which is to say all at once. And it's always windy where they live. So they're going to tip one way or the other way. And if you're on one side of the line, you get a shot. And if you're on the other side of the line, don't get a shot so they are delicious birds too so um i'm pretty stoked about that we're gonna be hunting sharpies too and tis the season bob's story um reminds me of why pheasant hunting is one of my first true loves and that is the pheasants are a maddening bird as well the act of pheasant hunting always for me was an act of storytelling and it was it's it's the combination of the environment the bird, your companions, and this part of America that is largely ignored, the kind of the flyover part of America, the fields and the prairies. And you put all those things together and you kind of mix it up. And it's it's a perfect recipe for great storytelling. So thanks, Bob, for remembering that story. And thanks, Hank, for being on some of those adventures, because as Hank, you know, a good story is, is only as good as the you know companions you have along with you. Let's start talking about the bird itself. So most people know that pheasants are not native to North America. So if you didn't know that, now you know. They're native to Manchuria. They are a distant relative of the actual chicken, which is from Southeast Asia. And they are known by any number of names. I prefer disco chicken. Some people call <laughs> – some people like ditch parrot. Um <laughs> But they're, uh, they were brought here by the American ambassador to China in, I believe, 1871. 92, 1892. 1892, okay. And they came over, and they were first 
set down in the Willamette Valley in, in Oregon. And they did so well in, in Willamette Valley, Oregon. There was a hunting season very shortly thereafter. And this was a time where fish and game departments and societies and such were like, yeah, there's this awesome game animal halfway across the world. Let's just put it here and see what happens. And they did that with a whole bunch of things. But what they found out is that the pheasant actually liked it here and did quite well here. And the episode I did on Hungarian partridge was a, a story where that didn't work. As you can guess by its name, a Hungarian partridge is not also native to the United States. They used to put them in upstate New York, but they didn't do it. They didn't do very well at all where the pheasant did. So the other funny thing about when you look at the books about wing shooting and upland hunting from the 1890s and early 1900s, you will see all kinds of hate raining down on the poor pheasant because all of these old school wing shooters more than a century ago were used to things like rough grouse, um, quail especially, and other birds that are, are a bit more skittish and a bit more fast flying. So there's like, well, yes, it's a pedestrian bird that is gaudy in its looks and blah, blah, blah. So there is to this day a uh, – um, and it's usually people from the Northeast who have patches on their elbows and smoke pipes, uh, a, a, a looking down upon on our beloved disco chicken. So, Bob, <laughs> defend the, the – <clears throat> how do you put it? The, the uh, non-native, slightly invasive. <laughs> <laughs> our beloved ringneck. Um, and so I'll, I'll correct myself. Uh, um, so the – very first uh, attempted introduction was 1881, so you're right. I was a slightly earlier. The very first hunting season was 1892, um, and you know the the ringneck pheasant. I, I see it every every day, whether it's Twitter or Instagram. The trolls out there um, kind of holding their noses up um, over this this uh, migrant species. But the reality is um, the ringneck pheasant has captured the passion and the love of millions of bird hunting conservationists and, you know, has has been the centerpiece of a, kind of a conservation movement across the, the native prairie, you know, you know the, the breadbasket of America, which which. Chris articulated earlier, flyover country. And, you know, we have habitat on the ground, and I'm going to focus very specifically at the Conservation Reserve Program, representing 27 million acres of habitat. So stop uh, you for a second. Yep. Tell tell the listeners exactly what the CRP is, because there's a lot of people who don't know what, what it is. Yeah, yeah. So, so every, say, four to five years the federal government creates what's called the Farm Bill. And the Farm Bill covers policy from food stamps to crop insurance to conservation. And the signature program within the conservation title of the Farm Bill is the Conservation Reserve Program. Uh, bird hunters know it as CRP. And it it fluctuates in the total number of acres um, year based on the farm bill, 
However, however, the the moral of the story is this program was created in 1985 under the Reagan administration and has been reauthorized through every farm bill through um, both Bush's, Clinton, Obama, and um, and now it's under the Trump administration and represents anywhere from 20 to 40 million acres of habitat based on the given farm bill. And it was originally created to kind of prop up uh, commodity prices. But very quickly, the government and landowners saw benefits for soil health, benefits for water quality, benefits for rural economies. Oh, and all this habitat that's created generated tremendous wildlife population responses, chief among them, um, well, chief among them, from my point of view, are ringneck, fe- ringneck pheasants. And um, so it, the habitat that's been created through CRP benefits more than just pheasants, though. It's waterfall, ducks, um, you know, mule deer, pollinating insects, monarch butterflies. But the ringneck pheasant, through the efforts of um Primarily bird hunters, duck, duck and, and upland hunters uh, has become sort of the signature component of CRP, which is um, has the recognition as being America's most effective conservation program. All right. So let me stop you for again for a second. So I'm going to tell people what CRP actually is because you, you, you know too much about it. Okay. So CRP and you tell me if I'm wrong is so it's a federal program that says a landowner typically a farmer can set aside this is the reserve portion of the c of the r in the crp part of his or her land and not farm it because typically it's going to be marginal land anyway it's not going to be your best ground to grow on so you just let it be what it wants to be and then in return because the federal government has has recognized that there are benefits to having this kind of fallow land or uh, really not messed with land you get a, you get some money so you're you're compensated for it yeah so i think i think you're you're accurate in the creation of crp back in 85 where it was termed set aside and it had a passive approach over time uh, both the federal government state governments and landowners uh, as well as conservation groups have taken a more active approach to CRP where it's not just let it be what it wants to be. It's very specifically managing those acres that uh, 100% right, it's environmentally sensitive, it's not the best farm land, but you can do prescribed burning on it, um, seeding it with pollinator mixes. So it doesn't just become, you know, after three or four years of being quote unquote set aside, become a monoculture. We, gotcha. we really actively want to manage it as wildlife habitat that cleans water, that improves the health of soils and creates creates a place for a wide menagerie of, of wildlife species. So it has evolved um, since its 1985 uh, beginnings. 
Hey, everybody. I'd like to take this time to thank Filson for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. As you may know, I wear their gear in the field all the time. I love their vests. I love their outerwear. Their tin cloth jacket is awesome. Definitely take a look at their collection of gear. A lot of it is new. A lot of it has been around for decades, and all of it is super, super high quality. If you are in the market for something to wear on your upland hunt this fall, Absolutely check out Filson. I can totally vouch for them from personal experience. Filson was founded in Seattle in 1897 when they started outfitting prospectors for the Klondike Gold Rush. And ever since then, they've been committed to creating best-in-class gear for the world's toughest people in the most unforgiving conditions. So we've referred to it a number of times already in this podcast as the ring-necked pheasant. So there are lots and lots and lots and lots of different kinds of pheasants. So does, does do either of you know why the ringneck and not say the golden or the the green or whatever whatever like what's what's special about the ringneck pheasant versus all the other varieties? Silence, which means I I don't know the answer to that. I I grew up in Michigan in a time that um, the state of Michigan tried to introduce the Szechuan pheasant to more wooded areas of the state of Michigan, because uh, like many places, the prairies were being taken over by uh, more more forestation, because you really truly have to actively manage grasslands. That's what the buffaloes did. You know, that's what uh, uh, fire on the prairie did. And if you don't actively manage, it becomes early successional forests. So Michigan had this idea to release Szechuan pheasants in the late 80s, and it failed miserably. Ultimately, um, state of Michigan had had money that they saw that this wasn't going to work, and they took the rest of that budget and allocated it to Pheasants Forever to do habitat work as opposed to releasing any other Szechuan birds, um, hmm. just birds in general, releasing birds in general, but Szechuan in particular are is not an effective way of augmenting wild populations. And in fact, it's a it, it can become a very big detriment because you have the potential uh, for introducing disease into a wild population. Just look at what's happened with deer and CWD. The same thing could potentially happen with released pheasants and introducing an avian influenza into a wild population. Um, so I, 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 a long-winded answer to, I don't know a lick about the other species, Hank. <laughs> uh, I, know, I know that uh, when it comes to to releasing birds, uh, the ringneck's the one that worked, and habitat is the name of the game for keeping them here. Hmm. Yeah, how about you, Chris? Well, let me just say, I, I want to ask Bob if he would reconsider renaming his organization uh, Disco Chickens Forever. <laughs> uh, ditch Parrots was ditch considered, parrots Ditch Parrots Forever was right. uh, what's considered, but DPF was not the acronym we wanted to run with. <laughs> Uh, there's a couple of other funny names. Uh, stubble ducks. You ever heard that one? No, that's a great one. <laughs> I love stubble ducks. And uh, and Rudy uh, is a good one. Um, now, I want to I want to get an official ruling on this. Thunder chicken. I've heard pheasants called thunder chickens, but I've also heard rough grouse called thunder chickens. Bob. Turkeys. Turkeys are thunder chickens. Yeah. If you talk, if you use thunder chicken um, anywhere 
probably except for Minnesota, it's a turkey. I would have sided with Chris as that I immediately thought of the rough grouse because of the drumming and the 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 flush that sounds like a chainsaw. But I have uh, when you bring up turkeys, you can certainly see the the connection there. Let me take a stab at your question, uh, Hank, about why the ringneck pheasant. And you might want to. This is purely speculation. No, no basis of fact here. But if you think about other animals that were introduced to the United States, like the common carp, the the, the um, brown trout, these were uh, fish and other animals that were really popular in their in their native countries. And the idea that you know, if well, if they're popular over there, um, certainly they could be popular in the United States. My guess is that back in the late 1800s, there probably wasn't a lot of science that went into something like this. It might have been as simple as, well, what are what are the things that we could capture and keep them alive long enough to get to the United States? And what's popular over there? And, and you know, what would be popular here? That's just my speculation. Um, it makes some sense. I mean, it really makes some sense because, you know, that, that survivability is a big deal because, uh, as we know, the grouse, our grouse species tend to be super nervous birds, and they don't, this is why you don't have pen-raised grouse, really, because mm. they don't withstand it where the pheasant does. So the other thing that people should know is that, well, why? Why did they bring these pheasants in? So they brought the pheasants in because market hunters had put the wood to prairie chickens so bad mm-hmm. that the, the the whole region, the whole upper Midwest, central Midwest, was seeing a drastic decline in game birds period mm-hmm. and unlike the sharp-tailed grouse which doesn't really like to hang around farms uh, he he likes actual real grasslands and prairies the prairie chicken didn't really mind being super close to farms and so when they killed so many prairie chickens that their numbers had declined they're like well we got to fix this we got to put something different in and so, and it's the pheasant that stuck and Mm-hmm. One of the things that's interesting about pheasants is their their proximity to agriculture. And there are very few upland game birds that I cover in this season. In fact, there are very few upland game birds, period, that really like farms. You know, most of them stay as far away from it as possible. Like the bobwhite hangs out around farms and cottontails hang out around farms and jackrabbits hang out around farms. But But the pheasant is almost always tied to agriculture and mm-hmm. i can think of a couple places where it's it's not right on farms or on their marginal land but that's the exception that proves the rule i think that's a hundred percent right and the other thing to think about is for the purists out there the sharp tail and the prairie chicken purists and and i love both of those birds as well but if you don't have pheasants and you don't have pheasants forever, fighting for CRP, fighting for WMA's grassland habitat, prairie chickens and sharptails go away a hell of a lot quicker without pheasants in their corner. Uh, because there's just not enough people that love sharpies and chickens. There's two million people that love pheasants and raise the voice to U.S. senators, U.S. representatives, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And if you just if you do license counts of how many people hunt prairie grouse, you're talking in the 
it's a few thousand. You know, maybe you maybe get into 20,000 people across the country that buy licenses to hunt prairie grouse. There's 2 million people in a good year that are going to buy to hunt pheasants and they carry the weight to protect the prairie that benefits Sharpies and in, in, in chickens as well. So here's a question for the people who don't live in pheasant country, which is to say the center of the country. Everybody listening to this who hunts these birds has a story about, well, there used to be 8 trillion pheasants in insert place here, and there are not that many pheasants here or any pheasants here. So I'm thinking primarily of the, the old Midwest, like Pennsylvania and mm. Ohio and New York and New Jersey. And I'm also thinking, though, about the West as well. I mean, I can tell you, you know, I'll start this conversation by saying I know exactly why there aren't any in California. And as early, as late as 20 years ago, there was buckets of pheasants here in the Central Valley where I live because it's agriculture and and there was lots of habitat for them. And mm-hmm. that that's the key with us is that California is a very, very efficient agricultural state. And they they pioneered the road to road kind of farming where your nearest row in whatever your crop is, whether it's an orchard or a row crop, is like three feet from the road. And mm-hmm. so there's no more hedgerow and there's no more there's nothing to put into CRP because everything is used because they've gotten so good at, you know, pulling everything out of the, their available land. So there's one county in the valley that still has them, and that's Yolo County, and they have consciously kept hedgerows and such. And so, but it's all private land, and good luck getting on it. Uh, and then there's one public area that's well known for pheasants where I live, and that's the Klamath River Basin. So the Klamath Klamath Refuge and the Tule Lake Refuge, up where Oregon and California meet, that has buckets of pheasants, and that that's just because. You have a different kind of agriculture there. It's it's more ranching and field crops rather than expensive stuff like fruit trees and, and row crops. So that's why there. But there's there used to be pheasants or more pheasants in places like Ohio or New York or Pennsylvania. So what's what's their problem there? Mm-hmm. Well, it, when you talk about pheasant populations, and and this is going to be true of any upland game bird you're talking about there are two primary factors habitat and weather and that's the simple the simple answer is you need quality and quantity of habitat and you need favorable weather um, for the most part we can't control the weather right uh, uh, harsh winters um, wet cool springs that limit um, reproduction that's a bit out of our control. Um, habitat is where it all comes back to. And it's, you know, as, as you can talk about private land and public land, break it up into two slices. At the end of the day, we're losing habitat, particularly uh, if you dial us back to 2007. 2007, not that long ago, 13 years ago, we had modern highs in bird numbers. You know, Minnesota harvested 600,000 roosters, Minnesota hunters did in, in 2007-ish. Um, South Dakota, 2 million. North Dakota, a million. Iowa was a few years back, a million birds. And that's fallen off dramatically. 
And the, the number one cause is the loss of habitat, primarily driven in the late in that 2010 timeframe by the advent of ethanol. Um, ethanol hmm. conversion of grassland, CRP, native prairie to cornfields um, for the purpose of, of, you know, creating ethanol um, really fueled the um, loss of habitat in a quick way. And then precipitously wildlife populations, particularly pheasants, declined. Water quality issues came in to, to be and we saw you know, the, the commodity prices um, take a hit as well. So as you look out the course of the next couple, of the last decade, things are trying to balance out again. You know, there's the swing back to the CRP has has gone from back in that 2007 time frame, about 36 million acres. It went as low as 20 million and now is back up to 27 million. And that is because very specifically, landowners, farmers, ranchers want more CRP on the ground. It, it got a little out of balance with that with that transition in the late 2000s. So no matter where you're talking in the country, Pennsylvania, New York, Iowa, the Dakotas, or all the way out to California, the answer is going to come back to habitat. The very specific reasons within the habitat is going to change a little bit. Some of it's, you know, loss of the fence rows. Some of it is there's just not enough quantity. So it makes predators more efficient. You know, if all you have is roadside ditches and buffers, well, predators can hunt that linear cover really effectively. You really need on a landscape to have quality bird numbers. You need a mosaic and a mosaic includes big blocks it includes linear strips, buffers, ditches, connecting those big blocks together. It needs pollinator plots to add diversity in insects for pheasants when they're when they're raising broods. Because when when the summertime is is um, happening, pheasants are not eating seeds; they're hundred percent eating insects. So you need pollinators to generate those grasshoppers and the beetles and the bugs. So, you know, and it also relates back to what I talked about earlier, where CRP isn't a set aside program. We really have to actively manage that habitat. So it is diverse. It's not a monoculture of brome, just one singular type of grass that's only good for, you know, spring nesting, and then it becomes virtually worthless. So we really truly need a mosaic on the landscape of all sorts of different things, including agriculture. And that's where habitat and harmony with production agriculture is the sweet spot for pheasants forever and quail forever to work, to find the places, you know, our saying is farm the best, conserve the rest. So it's, you know, we we're, we know that the country needs to produce food, fiber and fuel, but it's got to be done in balance with water quality, soil and wildlife and rural economies that are propped up based on the ag industry and based on the tourism industry that pheasant hunters and uh, quail hunters bring into um, to places like Aberdeen, South Dakota or Albany, Texas or Albany, Georgia. Can I can I just jump in there uh, and add a little bit? Having yes. this a lot, Bob's absolutely right. 
I'll take it up just a little bit higher level here for your listeners, Hank. And it's really about the uh, the change in agriculture and the industrialization of agriculture. And and you touched on it earlier, Hank. You know how California had really invented the sort of row row to row um, agriculture. You look back at all the old pictures of pheasant hunters, you know, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And farmers in Minnesota were, were living in, on small farms, and they had what would be very primitive equipment for what we would look at right now. Uh, a farmer could, you know, make a living on 400 acres and um, had, you know, wasn't able to farm with the kind of efficiency that they started to see in the 80s. Even in my lifetime and even in, you know, my last 20 years, I've seen such uh, an efficiency in farming. Uh, even 20, 30 years ago, uh, you know, you go to the most efficient farm, and, and there'd still be that corner uh, that had, you know, uh, fence rows and that little piece that had foxtail and stuff. That's all gone uh, now, and farmers have to find uh, are looking for the incentives to farm more efficiently, and so it really. What what Bob was talking about is habitat has to sort of plug into the industrialization of agriculture in America and the efficiencies that that our farm economy is always looking for, uh, and 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 that it's not friendly to wildlife. And Bob's also absolutely right. Conservation, agriculture need to work hand in hand, and these sort of ups and downs of pheasant populations are really tied to. Uh, the farm economy. Last thing I'll say is that pheasants are really dependent upon private land conservation. You know, we we li- we cannot buy enough public land to keep a, uh, a pheasant population at a level that sportsmen and women would be satisfied with. Minnesota's probably bought more public land than any other state in the country, or at least in the pheasant range. And um, that's one of the reasons I would argue that Minnesota is emerging as a really strong pheasant state because we've made those investments. But it's still not enough. I mean, the, the amount of public lands in, far, in pheasant country in Minnesota ranges between two and maybe six percent mm-hmm. in a good county uh, of the land base in those counties. So I'll, I'll, I wanted to throw that in there to kind of give that bigger perspective. Bob and I and Hank, we all love farmers. But they're driven by the market to be as efficient as possible, and they got to make a living. So uh, that's that's kind of the the big picture view of that. I'd like to take a moment to thank Hunt to Eat for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Hunt to Eat is a casual hunting and angling apparel company based on community, real food, and conservation. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out the Hank Shaw T-shirt collection. You'll also find wild game recipes hats, and other kinds of gear, including aprons with the Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook logo on them. If you use the code HANKSHAW at checkout, you will get 10% off your order. Thanks again to Hunt to Eat, and back to the podcast. All right, let's kill some pheasants. So, <laughs> Sorry about uh, the little detour, but I wanted to I wanted to throw the farmer back in the, in the, in the discussion here because uh, she and he are really important here. Absolutely, absolutely. So mechanically... This is a it's a different style of hunting for the most part than any other upland bird hunting. You 
maybe some people will bobwhite quail hunt this way, but the signature pheasant hunt, and obviously there's many different ways to hunt them, but the signature pheasant hunt is virtually military. It's it's sort of it's sort of uh, football like, where you've got big lines of people walking across fields, and everyone's talking, and there's dogs coursing in front of you, and the 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 pheasant hunt that is in most people's mind's eye is a group thing. It's it's a especially in the early season. So there's a communal aspect to it that is the only thing that I can think of that is equivalent to that is dove hunting, mm-hmm. where you know in the south you'll get 50 guys in the field shooting doves, and I have been part of 25 30 man lines for pheasant hunting. And again, this is this is that that pageantry of that opening week of pheasant hunting where, you know, the whole world comes out to Nebraska or South Dakota or Kansas. And it's like a big party. And it's one of the one of the things that sets pheasant hunting apart from, say, rough grouse hunting, where you'd never have 15 guys in the in the in the woods chasing rough grouse all, you know, connected to each other in, in some way. I mean, I've Apparently they do have big giant grouse hunts, but that seems weird. Whereas it does not seem weird for pheasants. Now, once the season goes further than a couple weeks, then it starts to break into looks more like what you and I have done, Chris and Bob, which is to say like there's three of us or there's four of us. And I actually like that big group hunt in the beginning of the season for the same reason everybody else does. It's, it's like it's old folks homes like everybody's back you see your friends you know the birds are less important because you know they're going to get shot somebody's going to shoot one it's fine it's less about putting three birds in your bag than it is to you know to see people you haven't seen all year and then you put your serious bird weight in your bag the, the next month and a half am i right i'd say yes i, I i'd like to ask bob if if he thinks pheasant hunting is moving away from those big lines of people, I've done that before. I absolutely loathe it. Uh, my idea of a great opening day is maybe four to six, you know, people pheasant hunting in in a line with dogs coursing in, in front of you. I've done the 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 big stuff, you know, where you got long lines of people in South Dakota, and it's just awful. I hate it. Other people are shooting your birds for you. You never know who shot what bird, and it's just it's dangerous, and I'm, I, I kind of have a bad attitude about it. <laughs> well, I, I, I think uh, I think Hank is right that that is the opening day sort of tradition, particularly, uh, and you mentioned it, Chris, South Dakota. Uh, you know, the the visual pageantry that you see in in photography and in outdoor television shows. And South Dakota is clearly the pheasant capital of the country. I mean, they they harvest the most birds by by far. And the the opening day group march that Hank refers to is the signature sort of way to do it. But I'll agree with Niski. Um, I <laughs> I loathe that I loathe that style of hunting as well. Um, it, you know, it's it's fun for the camaraderie. Uh, but it completely takes most of the dog work out of the mix, particularly if you're, I guess here, here comes the, the, the pointer sensibilities in me, you know, if you're running pointers and flushers together with a march of people, 
the pointer is just at a disadvantage completely and it's it it takes a lot of the enjoyment i may given all the op- options of pheasant hunting i'm a solo hunter just me and my dog but you know i i certainly do it in a small groups but uh i think that does make part of the beauty of pheasant hunting in that you can do it in a variety of ways and be successful and we're going to see that this year the year of the pandemic because i think you're right there's going to be a lot of marches out there this year because i the license sales are through the roof no matter what state you're talking about so there's going to be a lot of group gatherings and uh, the solo hunters are going to um, probably be late hunting later than normal this year. You kind of both alluded to it in a bit, and and but before we talk about dogs, because it's an important part of this, what are your tips on dogless hunting pheasants? Because I am a dogless hunter, and I've killed any number of pheasants, and I have some tips, but I want to hear your guys' advice, because you have hunted collectively pheasants way, way more than I have. So if you don't have a dog, and you're trying to kill some pheasants, what's, what do you do? It's actually a great way to learn how to pheasant hunt. I think what you're going to do is you're, you're going to learn how pheasants behave and where they hang out, which is going to be different at different times of the day. But you really want to, um, and again, I think it depends on the time of the day, but early morning, you're going to want to um, be along those field edges uh, where there's food and the thickest cover possible, I, I would probably focus on. And in the after in the evenings the same thing. In the afternoons they're going to be in the corn or they're going to be uh, in in other places. I don't know, Bob. What what do you think? Yeah, I think uh, your prime times are morning, whenever your shooting hours begin, and your golden hour, the end of the end of the day, and walk in the edge of crops. And generally, you can come and catch birds moving out of their feeding time into their roosting areas. If you're hunting midday, think think like a coyote. Hunt linear cover. Hunt ditches, hunt buffers. You, you're, a pheasant's survival instinct is not to fly. A pheasant's survival instinct is to run around you. So with the dog component is getting the pheasant in the air, pinning a pheasant to a location till they have to flush. If you don't have a dog, you need to get that pheasant into the air. So you're you're hunting linear cover. You might be hunting in circular routes and thick cover like Chris talked about. Um, but your goal is to figure out how to get that bird into the air. Um, that's and then. I would just say be an excellent shot if you're going to hunt without a dog. Pheasants are tough SOBs. You got to whack them really hard to drop them dead if you don't have a dog to help you recover them. So don't take those 50-yard shots and just wing a bird um, because pheasants, pheasants are survivors. And without a dog... And without a good shot, you're just going to cripple a lot of birds. That's some good advice, especially about about the shooting aspect of it. You might also, if you're dogless, bring gnarlier shot, you know, like bismuth or or like prairie storms actually quite good. Mm-hmm. Like, but, but bring like fives or even fours and you just put that bird down. Mm-hmm. My other piece of advice for dogless hunters is to hunt small cover 
So if you know if you're in the the pivot zone, mm-hmm. hunt those weird triangular edges of the pivot because typically the the triangular edges that are not in the circle uh, are overgrown and and they have birds in them. And a single person can work through those little spots. And if there's a bird there, it'll get up because it doesn't have anywhere else to go because typically on the in the circle part it's there's nothing there and then there's often a road or a dirt road or a path on the other sides of it uh little sinks so if you've got a big old giant field of something and that you know those little sinks that you'll see in those fields and the and that's there often be cattails in those and sometimes even actual water in the center of them but they're isolated right because the, the farmer has farmed all around it and those little weird patches that are in otherwise in agriculture those i have found will have held pheasants quite a bit and you see that a lot in klamath up in, up in northern california where i hunt the pivot is a wonderful um example of of where to hunt without a dog and and it's also a terrific example you know those corners for wildlife where the farmer and the hunter intersect and they both get a benefit of you know the conservationist uh, that farmer gets paid on those corners for wildlife program and the hunters you know get get some extra habitat and for those birds and those are places you got to be ready not only for pheasants but they're terrific places to find bobwhite quail in states like nebraska uh colorado and kansas so that's those corners, those pivot corners are terrific examples for places to hunt without a dog. Hank, can I talk a little about a little bit about footwork? Yes. And and this is something that I think a lot of beginning bird hunters don't think too much about. It's something I, I've talked to a lot of new hunters about. You know, you think about your you're hunting pheasants and um, you're walking across uneven terrain and you're carrying a six to eight pound gun. And your natural tendency is going to be looking down at the ground to make sure you don't fall on your ass because you do it a lot. And what you need to do is train yourself to be looking up all the time and anticipate the terrain in front of you and be able to walk in a way that's um, that you can always have a stable shooting platform from. So you're not sort of, uh, you know, you see the pheasant flush and then you stand and, and you shoot. And, and you're talking about the dogless hunter. You want to take that shot as soon as possible when that bird, you know, flushes. You got to identify it as a rooster. You got to estimate its distance. And you got to make an, a good, clean shot as it's either flying away from you or maybe banking. And there's nothing more important than having a good stance and not falling over, uh, <laughs> you know, having your feet tangled up in some brush or whatever. And I, I just think beginning hunters and even, you know, experienced hunters, just pay close attention to where your feet are all the time. And you, if you do this enough, you will start to be able to walk without ever looking down at all. Your feet just kind of know where to go. Um, I think this is true of also hunting in thick cover in the woods. Uh, I've seen a lot of beginning hunters walk through the woods and it's, you know, they're falling over all the time. And frankly, if you're a beginning pheasant hunter and you're not falling over a little bit, you are probably looking at your feet too much. So I don't know, Bob, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, it definitely resonates with me when I think I just got done rough grouse hunting. And, you know, the the seasoned vets are thinking about their their footwork, you know, carrying the gun, uh, port arms, looking for shooting lanes. 
Um, it's pretty intuitive when it comes to rough grouse, right? But it's it's often overlooked from a pheasant hunter's perspective. And you're walking those uneven WPAs and WMAs, and you're walking through willow thickets, and you know that's the the cover that pheasants are going to key in on certain times of the year. So, yeah, just like uh, a center on a basketball team, footwork's awfully important to, for the pheasant hunter. Yeah, no kidding. I, I can't tell you the number of times I've been ready to shoot a rooster and I step in a badger hole, you know, or um, I'm I'm trying to untangle myself from, you know, some uh, some really thick weeds and or I have a cattail in my eyeball. Can I just say stop you for a second and say go Badgers? Go Badgers. <laughs> <laughs> I know you guys are both Minnesotans and I went to Wisconsin, so I have a step in my house, so I can. Uh, <laughs> I'll send you a picture of my stuffed badger, Hank. I, I know. It's the closest Minnesota's ever going to get to beating the Badgers. Ooh. <laughs> I can see the chagrin on both of your faces right now. It's pretty epic. <laughs> well, we have a gopher, and we have a badger, and we have a wolverine on this call. So we could we could seriously have a discussion about It's true. I mean, I think I ha- we, have to, we have to give the nod to the wolverine as the nastiest of the three animals. That's true. <laughs> fitting for my personality right right <laughs> <Not>. <laughs> all right dogs so this is a good one because Nisky runs flushers and you run pointers bob mm-hmm. fight 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 mm. i'm kind of envious of bob because uh in my in my darkest part of my heart i'd love to have a really good pointer right now well, and so the, you're not going to get the fight you want, Hank, but uh, if if I lived in Minnesota, Iowa, and exclusively hunted pheasants, I, I'd own a Labrador. Um, where pointers for me are the right fit is is the traveling diversity of birds that I hunt. You know, if, if I'm going to run big in Montana, the grouse woods of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where, where I'm from... Uh, quail across Nebraska, Kansas, and pheasants in every, in all those states. That's where that's where I gravitate towards the the pointer because they they're kind of the Swiss Army knife of the upland world. Yeah. Uh, if you wanted to just pound those cattails and and get roosters in Minnesota or South Dakota, then then you should own a Labrador. Really, that, that's a lot less of a fight than I expected. I'm, I'm sort of disappointed. I've hunted with some really fantastic uh, pheasant hunters. I'll drop a name right now. Gary Clancy. He has a wildlife management area uh, named after him. He was a Brittany guy to the very end. And he had such an incredible relationship with his with his Brittany's. And um, to watch them uh, hunt together. And Gary always hunted with a 20 gauge, sometimes with a 410. I mean, he was really an iconoclast, and he was a hell of a shot. If you weren't on your toes, that rooster was going to be in Gary's uh, bird bag before you knew it. So did you ever hunt with Gary, Bob? No, I haven't, but his stories are, are lore. I mean, his, you know, he was ex, ex-Vietnam, I believe, and, um, you know, he would hunt through the toughest weather, and he survived – um, you know, he hunted with cancer for many, many, many years during radiation and chemo, and he just loved pheasant hunting so much 
that, uh, you know, he, he'd knock him on his ass at the end of the day with all the chemo and the radiation, but it was uh, also what kept him going. And that's testament to, to how passionate you can become with the connection of the bird and the connection with the dogs that you mentioned with the Britneys that he loved. I've hunted with drought hours and uh, GSPs and all different types of, of pointers, moostalanders, Britneys, and all different types of flushing dogs, springers. Some of the best hunting dogs I've ever seen were n- none of those. Mm. They were a mix of them. Mm-hmm. I, I have a friend, Chris Winchester, who always gets his uh, Labrador retrievers from the pound. <laughs> and 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 these dogs might not look like your classic Labrador retriever, but he has such a re- close relationship with his dog and he trains them so well that he just has amazing hunting dogs. I've I've learned so much from from people like this about pheasant hunting who just apply just real practical things. Mitch Kizar, I think, hunts with um, terriers, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He, he does. He has a couple of terriers that flush the bird. And they're so small that they can't retrieve it. So, so they, they stand on top of it, you know, with the, uh, that's awesome. it's out. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's like smidge. Anthony Houck's little teeny, what's that, like a micro cocker or something? <laughs> yeah, he's got cockers and cockers are wonderful dogs. And they, you know, there's uh, Airedale Terriers. There's a group that, uh, uh, not a group, but a, um, a contingent of people that just love Airedale Terriers for hunting. And and poodles, you know, even uh, poodles have a long history of being hunting dogs. So, you know, it's uh, I know you wanted a little bit of a fisticuffs <laughs> here over bird dogs. And, I, you know, I'm a passionate lover of short hairs. I grew up with Britneys. I grew up with Britneys. My wife grew up with Labs. She wanted a bigger dog. I wanted a pointing dog. And the merit of compromise was a short hair. <laughs> so, uh, but there's so many choices and they're all wonderful. You just kind of, it becomes a very individual preference based on what you like to look at. Cause you're going to have that dog 365 days a year. The, t- the style of hunting you like and the type of birds you like and where you live and where you travel, it's a pretty complex question. And well, and also throw in, do you live in a house with acreage or do you live in an apartment? And, you know, there's so many variables that it becomes a really, really personal choice. And it's hard to pick a fight with anybody over their dog choice because the longer you're in this, you see wonderful um individuals out of every breed hmm. I, i've hunted with some beautiful vishlas um i've hunted with some goofy golden retrievers that got, totally got it done in the field mm-hmm. i think more importantly is not 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 the breed but the training of the dog um and i i will say i i, I believe in having good bloodlines but if if you have a have a dog that has an inclination to to hunt birds give it a shot why not what about other gear? So I will, I mean, you guys both are familiar with Tinkerbell, the uh, 20 gauge over and under that I've shot almost exclusively for almost 20 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have switched to an A400 for ducks, but uh, 
the the 20 gauge over and under uh i swear by it and you know i'm gonna shoot lead fives or sixes at pheasants um or bismuth sixes or uh, you know if i shoot straight up steel i might i I think i'm gonna go with just fives fives are always good and definitely high base and definitely three inch and 20 gauge um i'm not gonna shoot a two and two and a three quarter inch shell out of a 20 gauge but i would for for a 12 and Hey, I want to actually, there's a side note I forgot to say when we're talking about dogless hunters. And this is a thing that, I don't know, Niski, you might have taught me this, but I've used it and it works. You you get a radio, like a transistor radio or some portable radio, and you, you turn it on at the other end of whatever the cover is that you're going to that you're going to go for. And I like to turn it to Rush Limbaugh because birds hate Rush Limbaugh. And, and I think it's his tone of voice or whatever. But talk radio is what you want. And you put that and you turn it on and you sneak over to the other side of the field and then you work towards your radio. And then that radio becomes a blocker so that the the, the chickens don't run away from you and you never it never <laughs> takes the air. Because once they're running, 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 all of a sudden they hear Rush Limbaugh and they're like, oh, my God, I hate Rush Limbaugh. And they fly and and then you get a chance to shoot. Them. So that's I don't know. if You if, didn't if, get that from me, Hank, but what, <laughs> it's, it is pretty original, I'd have to say. It works. <laughs> this segment of pheasant hunting tips brought to you by Spotify. <laughs> well, I do want to mention, and not to make this into a commercial, but you, you bring up Prairie Storm, and you know I shoot Federal Prairie Storm steel. I've, you know, I've gone pr- pretty much non um, non toxic for for all my bird hunting, and you know I think it is important for bird hunters to know that there are companies that support the habitat mission of the organization and federal is one of those that has contributed they they see the long game to conservation and that's critically important in the midst of this covid situation where uh organizations like ours have lost all these banquets and membership is a challenge and companies um, you know, we really need the companies that stick with us and, and make a contribution. And, and Federal is one of those that's been with us since the mid 80s. And I bring that up and tie it back to, to you, Hank, because your book, Pheasant, Quail, Cottontail, is another example of, you know, you're not a corporation, but you're a person that believes in habitat, wild birds, and our organization's mission. Not only are you a life member of of Quail Forever and a member of Pheasants Forever, but every time somebody buys Pheasant, Quail, Cottontail, no matter where, whether it's through our website, your website, Amazon, you give a contribution, a completely unattached contribution to our organization to fulfill our habitat mission. And I want to bring that up, A, to publicly thank you on your own podcast for making that (laughs) commitment, but also to reinforce the importance of there's an awful lot of companies that make a buck on wild bird hunting and and public lands, but there's an awful important group within that uh, corporate world that also give back Beyond just PR dollars, Pittman Robertson dollars, beyond that, they, they make contributions to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever and Ducks Unlimited and the Rough Grouse Society, backcountry hunters and anglers. And that is so critically important. So 
So first of all, thanks, Federal. And second, uh, thank you, Hank Shaw. How about you, Chris? I would, I would, I would say the five is the best overall shot. And I want to just throw a, a big kudos to Bob for promoting pheasant hunting and, and, the, and the people who, who help pheasant hunting, because without that, pheasant hunting wouldn't, wouldn't be here today. People need to speak up for the birds, whether it's in Congress or it's at your local Pheasants Forever chapter or, or whatever. Fives, I think, are the overall best. Uh, if you're shooting steel, I, I think most people are going to be shooting twos and fours. So Bob mm. mentioned non-toxic. Uh, Bob, what what size shot? Do you I, I do shoot uh, steel fives, and shoot, uh, uh, but you g- got to remember, um, I'm shooting over a pointer. Yeah. And I generally shoot um, Prairie Storm steel, which packs a wallop, Perfect. and I shoot skeet chokes to open up that pattern over a point. Uh-huh. So I I right. think it's it's important for bird hunters. It's it's kind of too many folks just throw in the improved cylinder choke and go with fives and head out into the field and call it good. And it's pretty important to pattern your gun, think about the time of the season and the style of dog you're hunting over. But um, um, yeah, fives, steel, skeet choke. And to your, I would agree with that. Um, I've not patterned my gun. You know, the inimitable Vikings coach Bud Grant used to say, I, I don't ever practice my shotgun because I want to be surprised. Uh, when the bird gets up, uh, this famous quote from Bud Grant, I'm often surprised by the fact that I hit most of the birds. I have a friend, Bill Marshall, who says, you should never miss a pheasant. And that uh, by that, he means don't don't shoot at a pheasant that you can't hit. And also, if you're pairing the right shot with the right gun and you've practiced with that gun, you shouldn't miss. And and I've thought about that a lot. And and, and he's right. You You should hit you know, 80% of the birds that you're shooting at or more. As to the type of gun to use, Gary Clancy shot with a pump 20 gauge, I think was given to him by his grandpa. He was lethal with that gun because he had shot it his whole life and he knew how it worked. I wouldn't say I'm as lethal as Gary Clancy with my old uh, Benelli, but I really know how it works. And one of the biggest excuses maybe that I hear from pheasant hunters, I couldn't get my safety off in time. And I, and I think that experience, you know where your safety is and you know how to get it off. But being really super familiar with your firearm, how it works, how it feels in your hands, how to get the safety off in a split second will make you a really successful pheasant hunter. And it's um, that that kind of familiarity with your gun is always going to trump having a purdy. Do you think do you have a, do you have a favorite gun that you've shot your whole life? Uh, no, I, I've guns. You get to shoot whatever you want, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I started like most kids with, a with a pump. Mine was in Ithaca. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, uh, grown to really become fond of over-unders. Um, I love being able to crack the over-under open over my shoulder and, and grab the, the bird out of the dog's mouth and not have to worry about setting a, the gun down and having a misfire. But yeah, it's um, I you can't really go wrong with most of the big brands. Um, find something that's relatively light and you can carry comfortably for ten miles, and you'll be in good shape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, weight of the gun is important, and I, I I would strongly advise all new pheasant hunters to use a twelve gauge. 
and then and yep. then scale down as you get better. Yep, I would, I would agree with that. And and uh, I think Bob's right. Guns are designed now to be light. If you are going to carry your dad's gun, that's you know super heavy, or grandpa's gun, really do some research on that gun and make sure it fits you well. Take it into a custom gunsmithing shop and have them make the stock fit you, uh, whatever wedging you might need for that. But also with any new gun, make sure it really fits you. I I can't tell you the number of times I've hunted with my father-in-law and he had a gun that didn't fit him. It was a beautiful gun, expensive gun, but it didn't fit him well. And he would miss five, six birds in a row and it drove him bananas. Mm. And I finally said, take it into your gunsmith and get it fixed. And when he did that, it was an epiphany for him. Oh yeah, I mean it's just, I, one of the first things I ever did was get my Franke fitted to me, and it's it changed things dramatically because you're right-handed, Chris, and mm-hmm. all the guns I borrowed from you, I couldn't shoot worth a damn because I'm left-handed because they're all canted the wrong God. way. For exactly, me. exactly. I I don't know how you ever did it. Uh, you you it takes a little bit longer. You 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 lift the gun and then you twi- you, you you torque your uh, wrist a little bit. So I mean, I, it makes me about a second. A second and a half slower than than with a with a gun that's fitted to me. Yeah, and also the whole dominant eye thing. And oh and yeah, handed right handed really important things to consider when you're you're a beginning bird bird hunter. So if I'm going to send a guy from the coast or from the south or wherever or, to pheasant nirvana, I'm hmm. going to send him probably to either Nebraska or Kansas. I'm actually not going to send him to the Dakotas because hmm. I have found that there is. Uh, calmer hunting uh, as many if not more birds you also have the it, it could be like cloudy with a chance of bobwhite quail which is always nice uh and then if you go to like western kansas you also have prairie chickens that you can hunt um and i forget i think it's either kansas or nebraska that actually gives you four birds which is the only state in the union that does that yeah. i know you guys are kind of probably more partial to the the Dakotas or maybe even Minnesota as a, as a destination. But if somebody was going to do a destination pheasant hunt, where do you send them? I, I think you, I, I'd agree with you, Hank. If you're sending someone from California, Oregon, uh, Kansas, uh, Nebraska are good choices. I, I know a, a group of guys in Oregon who drive to central North Dakota every year and spend a month there. Kind of an odd place to end up if you're from Oregon because you drive past some really good some really good pheasant hunting. There's fabulous pheasant hunting in Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would, if, if you're in Washington, um, there's some great pheasant hunting um, along the Columbia River. There, it's not just the Midwest anymore. Uh, Bob, I, I, I don't know. I, I hear great reports from some of the Western states. Um, mm-hmm. In Colorado, there are birds in Colorado. Yeah, yeah, by fun in Colorado. Well, so to answer your question, Hank, if you're purely going for a pheasant hunt, then I'm sending them to South Dakota. Just, I mean, there's no doubt about it. I'm sending them to Chamberlain, Mitchell area, um, maybe Pierre. If they're, if you're just going to hunt pheasants. Now it gets them to be more complex because you throw in cloudy with a chance of bob whites, right? <laughs> and uh, uh, if you want uh, forest and prairie, uh, if you want ducks and then or beautiful scenery, like if I want the most picturesque pheasant hunt in the on the planet, I'm going to Montana, probably going to um, Lewistown, Montana and yeah. going to hunt in the shadow of the Rockies. If I want the best mixed bag, uh, you know, chickens, sharpies, quail and pheasants, I'm probably going 
to Nebraska. If I want, you know, another mixed bag and I can shoot four roosters and quail and and uh, prairie chickens, then I'm going to Kansas. If I want to do a morning duck hunt and an afternoon pheasant hunt, I'm going to North Dakota. If I want to do a prairie and forest combo, I uh, try to shoot the ultimate mixed bag, in my opinion, which is pheasants and rough grouse. I'm going to Minnesota. Uh, Iowa's on the list uh, for for quail and pheasants too. So, but if you're purely put a gun to my the proverbial gun to my head, go on a pheasant hunt, and I want I'm gonna just ch- purely chase roosters. It's the pheasant capital of the country. Two million roosters a year. That's that's the South Dakota. Hmm. Can a guy or gal show up in North Dakota without a guide and find a place to hunt in South Dakota? South Dakota, hundred percent. Oh yeah, there's actually a ton of public land in uh, South Dakota because South Dakota has walk-in program, uh, and I'd put you towards the James River Crep. So James, it's a follow the James River on the map from Aberdeen down, and they have a walk-in program built on private land to create public access. So they got that, they got waterfall production areas, they got game production areas, which are state-owned lands. They have, like you mentioned, the Sand Lake Wildlife Refuge. Wildlife refuges for upland birds are probably among the most overlooked places to go bird hunting. There's some in northern Kansas that you can get into remarkable pheasant and quail hunts um so public lands you know the dakotas are terrific as you mentioned earlier minnesota has permanent public lands um wmas and wpas in the pheasant range that are the gem of minnesota minnesota is for sure the most underrated pheasant destination in the country um it has the highest population of people in the pheasant range. So there's a little bit more pressure, but it has more birds than people give credit for. Um, So, you know, it's, I think it's, this is a weird statistic, but I believe Kansas and Iowa are two of the bottom three states in terms of public lands. They're like 48th and 49th in terms of total number of public lands, which is really bizarre when you consider Connecticut and Delaware and Rhode Island. Uh, But thankfully, they're making some inroads there. You know, Kansas has a million plus acres of walk a walk-in program. And Iowa has IHAP, uh, which is Iowa Habitat um, Access Program, which is another access program built on top of private land. And some of these walk-in programs, I think about Iowa's IHAP and Nebraska's Open Fields and Waters, incredible properties they're private lands the state governments are paying those landowners to improve the habitat on the property and they open it up to public access again it's another intersection with the landowner the farmer and the hunter and i'll call out those two in particular nebraska and iowa their access programs are off the charts when it comes to terrific hunting opportunities and wildlife species. Uh, I've hunted them both extensively and you can get into just terrific pheasant, quail, and uh, prairie grouse numbers. Hmm. Well, before we stop, because we've been going a long time, we can't leave without talking about eating pheasants. 
So this is my area of expertise, but obviously I want to hear from you guys as well. And I always start the, the, the food talk with the issue of, you know, hashtag give a pluck. Um, so few pheasant hunters actually pluck their birds, and I think that's a serious shame. The advice I give for pheasants is the advice I give for any of the grouse species, which is to let the bird chill out in the refrigerator for several days before you attempt to pluck it. If you try to pluck a pheasant when everybody wants to pluck a pheasant, which is, you know, that afternoon or the next morning, the feathers will still be so strongly attached to the to the bird that you're going to tear the skin virtually every single time. They age really, really well. Um, most of the meat science done on the aging of birds has been done on pheasants because you can buy wild pheasants in England and in Australia. So the, the, there's a bunch of science on it and I'll put a link to, uh, hanging pheasants in the show notes. The general takeaway has been that most people who eat aged pheasants prefer them aged for five days at 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And that is a perfect window for a wild rooster. You're going to hear, oh, well, some insert other group of people here, hang them until their heads fall off. And <laughs> it's actually a myth. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rural myth. It's not an urban myth. Uh, it's because nobody does that. Like nobody does that. They always talk about somebody else doing that. And what really people do is I've seen them as, as aged as long as 10, I heard 14, but you're starting to get into some gnarly area there. Um, <laughs> bacteriologically, if your temperature never goes above 55, you're always in good shape. But the, the short version is get your birds as cool as possible from the second that they hit the ground. You know, if it's a hot day, if it's if you're hunting pheasants on a hot day, which happens, consider clipping a, uh, a like a duck style game strap to that little loop that's in the back of your your game vest because you know every game vest has the pouch in it but it's got a little loop on the outside as well and consider attaching a duck style you know game strap to that loop so that you can hang your pheasants from the neck while you're still hunting and they're not stuck in your pouch which is very very hot and closed place it can actually damage the birds significantly if you're hunting in 75 or 85 degree weather then when you get home to the truck don't stack them up line them up so that they can they can continue to cool that way and if you don't have a cooler i mean if you if, if it's over 60 degrees when you're hunting out you need a cooler for your drive home or for your drive to the hotel and then just keep them cold from then on in for at least three days and then pluck them. And they are going to be perfectly fine. And no, I'm not gutting. Everybody's like, well, you got them first, right? I'm like, nope, you don't gut them. This. The, only, the only animals that you need to, to gut before aging are bigger than pheasants. So turkeys are one, geese especially. And then you can just kind of go from there. You know, they, you've, you've heard it from the horse's mouth. I mean, I've done this a billion times and it, and it works really really well for me what's also good is a lot of people like us like we've been talking about at the beginning of this podcast will travel so they're like well what do i'm doing i'm staying in a hotel keep them cold i have stuck untold numbers of upland game birds holing in the feathers in hotel refrigerators and the only thing you need to do is just don't be a jerk and pick all the stray feathers and clean up any blood that's in there before you leave the hotel because it's you know it's kind of a dick move if you don't do that hmm. um but 
I have kept birds on a 10 day road trip perfectly fine. And, you know, you end up plucking them four, five, six days after you hunt them. By the way, I'm I'm a, a plucking Jedi, so I can do this in a hotel room and leave no feathers. <laughs> it's a skill, but you know, if you don't if you don't have that kind of skill, find a place where you can pick into a garbage bag if you're on a longer trip. But you know, most people it's just like you just do it when you get home. Or if you're in South Dakota, like you were saying before, it is such a pheasant friendly place. Mm-hmm. There are cleaning stations all over the place. Yeah. Well, Hank, you are to bird plucking. But Gary Gasparov is to chess. <laughs> you are you are a, a grand master, and I I have watched you pluck. You have inspired me, and and I'm sure you have inspired thousands of other bird hunters to stop pulling the breast out and pluck that bird. I have a whole bunch of woodcock in my freezer right now that I would not have ever plucked if it weren't for you. So, <laughs> Uh, now, I'm thanking you. I'm sure there are lots of spouses all over North America who probably hate you because now they've got pheasants hanging in there, uh, bleeding all over their car, you know, hanging from the garage for five days. And, you know, <laughs> what spouse doesn't love that? <laughs> oh, my favorite is you put you well, you're putting them in the refrigerator. You can put them heads out at your children's eye level. Perfect. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right next to all the frozen, uh, next to the uh, pizza that you've also put in there. That's, exactly. Uh, the pizza. So I'll definitely agree that um, plucking is the way to go if you are a Jedi master like Hank. Uh, but at, at fundamentally, I'll just implore people because uh, I see it every year where they're just saving the breasts and throwing the west the rest away um what i if we can get pheasant hunters to take one step and that's to save the legs yes my goodness not only is it um i mean ultimately it's illegal because you're it's wanton waste um but you're throwing away an absolute gem even if you don't have the time to pluck and i get it because i'm not a jedi master i honestly um, I, I pluck one, one or two birds a year, but I never, ever throw the legs away. The legs are just terrific in, you know, tacos and soup and pulled pheasant sandwich. I mean, there's so many things you can do with them and they taste incredible and it's so easy. So the very minimum, save the legs. hundred percent. And the, 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 to add to that, Save the legs, skinned or plucked, and take shears, and as you collect pheasants, separate the drumsticks from the thighs. So you have a packet of drumsticks and a packet of thighs, because with the exception of the wild turkey, there is no bird that I'm aware of that has nastier tendons and sinews in its drumsticks than a pheasant. I mean, we've been talking this whole podcast about how a pheasant is likely going to run away from you and not fly. They have big, strong, powerful legs. And by separating the thighs from the drumsticks, you have a whole packet of things with only one bone, which is the thigh. And then you have a whole bunch of things that you can then slow cook. You throw them in a crock pot, and then you pull the you pull those ten, the meat off the tendons. Now, there is a trick that sometimes works. I mean, it's not 100%, but you can partially sever the foot at the knee Mm -hmm. with a knife 
you don't want to do this with the shears because you're typically going to go right through. Take the, you know, so if you imagine all birds, their knee is like a square. There's four points on it. And there's two points above the, the foot and there's two points below the foot. You know, so right at, you know what I'm talking about? Two are attached to the foot and two are attached to the thigh. So you run your knife in the center of that square and that will open up that knee right at the joint. You won't touch bone at all. Now, you almost totally sever it. Now you take the foot and you twist it around over and over and over and over and over again, maybe four or five revolutions, while holding the actual drumstick with your off hand. So I'm I'm actually doing this in my, you know, I'm pantomiming it right now. And since I'm left-handed, I've got the foot in my left hand and it's been twirling around and I'm holding that drumstick tight with the right. So when you've got two or three revolutions, you hold onto the drumstick for dear life and you yank and that will pull virtually all of the tendons out of the drumstick. Amazing. It doesn't always work because sometimes the, the Achilles of the, of the bird just breaks, but when it works, then you have a drumstick that you can eat with virtually no problem. Cool. Yep. See, <laughs> yeah, you, you gotta, you gotta do a, a video on that because I there's will. an old, um, old outdoor show guy that uh, did a video on that on, on the sidewalk and um, it, it needs to be updated Hank Shaw style. Giblets mm-hmm. are another thing that I implore people to keep. Um, you know, the gizzards of a pheasant is, uh, are large enough to work with. The hearts are, are very easy to get out. Livers, I, uh, I will keep them if the livers are light colored. So the light colored liver is an indication of fat. So if you buy chicken livers in the store, you'll notice they're tan and not burgundy. You will get pheasants that will have tan livers, and that means there's fat in them, which means they're going to taste way better than, say, like a sea duck liver, which is going to be as burgundy as you get and and very strong flavored. I also collect them by giblet, you know, a packet of livers, a packet of of gizzards and such. And as you collect them, and, and virtually all of these giblets taste more or less the same species to species to species. So it doesn't matter that you've got rough grouse or duck or pheasant or whatever. You can just throw them all to make like uh, a liver pate or dirty rice or skewered hearts or whatever, whatever. It's it's a good way to make use of it in a way that's delicious. I never want someone to eat offal or giblets because I feel that it's a moral obligation. I think that's shaming people into eating them is stupid and doesn't work. I think giving people a recipe that is accessible and easy will make them want to do it. And and my advice is the, the gateway drug of all giblets is dirty rice, Cajun dirty rice. Mm-hmm. Right. How old does a pheasant live, Bob? The uh, majority of them are, are nine months, you know, because uh, you're shooting a lot of young of the year. And from a population perspective, I think it's, Something like you only need to carry over 10% of the roosters into the next year to maintain a population, which is why we shoot roosters and not hens. The key is for the hens to, to survive through one reproduction season to raise that, um, you know, that nest of 11 eggs that become 11 chicks that uh, make it to the next season. So they... You know, at the very long term, they're living three years, but the average is they're living nine months. So when yeah. I when I know the difference between a young pheasant, you know, and from his palatability, 
a nine-month-old pheasant versus a three-month-old rooster or three-year-old rooster, Hank? Yes, absolutely. Really? So all birds that I know of, there may be exceptions, but to my knowledge, every bird that we hunt, you check the covert feathers. It's basically you're looking at the feathers on their shoulders, like right where the wing connects to the uh, connects to the body. And on young birds of virtually every species, the ends of those feathers will be lighter in color. Sometimes there is a, a tan edge band to those feathers, and sometimes it's a different color, but it's typically some lighter color on the on the edges of those feathers that are right kind of at the shoulder of the of the bird. Those are called the covert feathers. And it will tell you if the bird is young of the year or not young of the year. What it what you can't tell is if it's not young of the year, you don't know if it's, you know, a year over a year old or if it's 30 years old. I mean, this is the case with, with waterfowl primarily. You'll see, oh, it's got the buffy wingtips, you know, on the on those feathers as a year old widget or a half a year, you know, young of the year widget. Or it could be a 30 year old widget. You just you can't tell, but you can tell young of the year by looking at the, the at the edges of those particular feathers in virtually every game bird that I know of. Hmm, interesting. I, I shot a, a rooster one time, and it's the only bird I've ever seen like this. It was thirty percent bigger than any other rooster I'd ever shot. Hmm. And it was in Sand Lake. I was it was in the dead of winter, only guy out there. This thing came right out of the snow at my feet. I shot it right at the end of the day and i went over and i picked it up and i was like man this is a big ass rooster <laughs> and when i put it next to the other two that i had it was it it was 30 percent bigger mm. and i maybe it was just a freak of nature or it had lots of fat on it had big old spurs on it I, I swear to god this thing weighed all of you know four and a quarter pounds or something like that it was Do huge you do you remember how long of a tail that it one had? Long tail, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I figure it was just a really old bird, and I, you know, I, I probably breasted it out and never did any comparison, you know. <laughs> but um, I mean, are there differences in in roosters in size? Are they all about that same same three pounds, Bob? Yeah, I, th- I think it's uh, you know the right around six pounds general rooster and the hens are okay. hens hens are smaller um you know i think the grouse is three pounds yeah yeah the the average tail feather um you know you start getting into the 20s and you got um kind of a you're getting a a bigger bird and as you mentioned the spurs as they get sharper and curlier that's an indication that it's an older bird as well um you know it's not people don't hunt pheasants tr- tr- like uh, with white tails and some of the you know the the elk and moose and deer species but um it is something that you know you look at them and like holy cow look at the size of that tail you could fly a kite with that thing you know that it, it makes them um add a little personality to them yeah. so before we go i gotta know bob did anybody ever get the million dollar pheasant <laughs> uh, the South Dakota million. Not that I'm aware of. I think that's still running around. So we'll send uh, we'll send folks to South Dakota to still try to find that million dollar gold medallion pheasant. Yeah, it's a banded pheasant. For if you guys don't know, it's a banded pheasant. And like if it's it's like Willy Wonka's golden ticket. If you <laughs> happen to get this particular pheasant, it's a million dollars. And 
do they is it i mean obviously that bird's dead because it's mm-hmm. it's been four or five years since they've done it um but do they do it every year or well i think there's a couple different communities that do that um i haven't honestly seen that in a couple of years aberdeen used to do it uh to tribe tourism they banded um a few birds and um they had i don't i think it was like numbers one through a hundred and if you got the bird and that number was pulled out of the pot you you had a chance to win i think the cabela's uh store in mitchell south dakota has done a similar banded concept um you know honestly we don't our organization doesn't get involved in those sort of things just it putting a bounty on a bird seems a little odd um you know let's let's uh the the true reward is when you put uh Hank Shaw's Jager schnitzel to the plate with a pheasant in, <laughs> and uh, which, uh, you know, Niski has replicated in my own house um, to perfection. Yeah. Um, so you, you got some tremendous recipes that, uh, that lots of people can approach that that's the true reward with pheasants. They are just wonderful to eat. Yeah, they really, they, they, they're, if they are probably the not chicken, that tastes the most like chicken. And mm-hmm. and even then they don't really taste like chicken because the fat is so radically different. But they're super accessible. They eat, I have probably close to 100 recipes for them or that work with them either in pheasant quail cottontail or on the website. I mean, there are guys who shoot 60 pheasants, mm-hmm. 80 pheasants, and I have enough recipes to keep you interested for the whole season. Yeah. Yeah, I'd point out the the Wiener Schnitzel one is super easy and and wonderful um also the general general sows am i pronouncing that general so yeah yeah that's probably i I gotta believe that's the most downloaded pheasant recipe or most looked at pheasant recipe you have on your site it's so good yeah it's unreal that if if you're gonna do one recipe this year that uh joe or Jane pheasant hunter can do, and the whole family's going to love it, go do that one. And it's skinless, so you don't have to even pluck the bird for it. There you go. That's right. So on our way out, how can people get in touch with you if they want to talk about pheasants? Start with you, Chris. If they want to talk to me about pheasants, drop me an email at niskanenchris at gmail.com. No period between niskanen and Chris. Uh, Love to hear from you. I'm happy to give out tips uh, on for beginners and um and i'll tell you where to go i i make no bones about it uh if we want to get more pheasant hunters in this sport more new pheasant hunters uh we have to as veteran hunters be willing to either take people out or at least point them in the right direction i think that's super important mm-hmm. uh so this is bob you can reach me at bob s at pheasantsforever.org. Pretty straightforward. I'm on all the social media channels. Pheasant Bob on Instagram, Bob St. Pierre, no period on Twitter. And and I guess my call to action is uh, I implore all the listeners out there that um, kind of live by your ethic um, to get involved in conservation. I'm biased. I'd love for you to join Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. But if, you know, uh, rough grouse are your gig, Join the Rough Grouse Society, Turkey Federation, Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfall, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Uh, get involved for conservation, na- nature conservancy. Just 
commitment of listeners to join the conservation cause is incredibly important. Um, as a voter, as a dues-paying member, uh, we can turn those dollars into habitat. And from Just as a Pheasants Forever example, since we were born in 1982, out of every single dollar we've raised, we've turned 90 cents on the dollar into habitat and public access on the ground. So get involved. I'll put a link to joining Peasants Forever and some of the other groups uh, in the show notes so if people want to. And, you know, enough for nothing. It's like 35 bucks. So, like, mm -hmm. really? I mean, you, you know, you spend a lot more on than that on your ammunition on a pheasant trip. You can do it once a year to, to help the birds. That's, well, my, that's my two cents. And if you want a real approachable way that and you don't already own pheasant quail and cottail, go, go buy Hank's book because that's going to generate a contribution from Hank to our habitat mission. And if you're a bird hunter and you don't own that book, well, you you're missing out. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's it's a must have. It's as it's as important as your shotgun. Wow, I couldn't have paid for that kind of a plan. Wow, that's, that's pretty, pretty sweet. <laughs> you know, the other thing is, is pheasant hunting is pretty cheap. You know, you don't need a dog. You don't need a fancy car. I I, I drive my Prius out on the prairie. Mm. Um, you can use a friend's shotgun, borrow a shotgun. You can get to these places and and just get out on the prairie. Um, I'll mention as well, you can find me on social media as well if you want to ping me on Insta or, or uh, Facebook. But it's not an expensive sport to get involved with. Yeah, I mean, well, that is a cool thing. I mean, you need a you need a vest. Vest, you can buy a vest for like 30 bucks. You know, you need a good pair of boots. Mm -hmm. But, you know, everybody should have a good pair of boots anyway. You know, shotgun and some shells and, you know, a hat. Yeah. You know, a blaze orange hat is, would be nice so that, you know, nobody, nobody Dick Cheney's you. Uh, well, I've been wearing the same vest for 25 years. So, I mean, that, that is a good investment. So, yeah, but you need to wash it every now and again. No, no, you got to You got to keep it looking, looking like you're, uh, you know, you just uh, stepped off the farm. It's so. super fragrant. Bob's going to see it this weekend. So I am looking forward to it. Some prairie therapy. There you go. All right, guys. It has been, this is uh, now officially the longest podcast I think I've ever done. Uh, but we could, and we really could talk more and more about all kinds of things pheasants. I mean, we just barely scratched the surface with cooking and prep. And we just barely scratched the surface with tactics on how to actually put pheasants in your bag. We covered conservation pretty well. But view these episodes as kind of uh, a primer, uh, kind of an inspiration to to learn more and, and get out there and do more. And, you know, hell, you need to get out for prairie therapy, like Bob's saying, uh, and just be there. Because 2020 is the, the year everybody wishes would not happen, but it's happening. And hunting, especially hunting birds, is a great way to, to get through anything that's that's not so great in your life right now. So that's that's all I got to say about that. Take it easy, guys. All right. Thanks. Thank you. That is our show for this week. Shout out to Hunt to Eat and Filson for sponsoring the show. I am your host, Hank Shaw. You can find me on social media at Instagram. I am at Hunt Gather Cook. I run a Facebook group. It is a private group on Facebook called Hunt Gather Cook. Answer the questions. Tell me that you heard me on the podcast and I will let you in. 
And as always, the core of what I do is my website, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. You can get there from honest-who.net or huntgathercook.com. You will find literally thousands of recipes, techniques, tips, and tricks on dealing with all sorts of wild game, all sorts of fish, wild mushrooms, and edible wild plants. Again, that is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, and I look forward to seeing you over there. Until next week, I am your host, Hank Shaw. Shoot straight, eat well, and have a damn good time out in nature's wilderness. Bye-bye.